in a lot of ways <clears throat> we're like naturalists instead of studying some animal or some other aspect of nature we're studying this inner nature of the heart and mind and one of the things now after several days in the retreat that I'm sure you see very clearly and sometimes the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart is wild and agitated and not very wholesome. And then hopefully sometimes the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart is stable and clear, beautiful even, wholesome. And um, you know, so much of what we're doing on retreat is being a good naturalist. It's not so much that we're in there with the big construction machines to sort of make the perfect me. It's more that model of quiet, careful, persistent observation. And like a good naturalist, they don't want their presence to skew how nature, how the animal is acting. And so there's also the same part of mindfulness or the practice that we do here, bringing mindfulness and wisdom together. How can we be present in a way that the mind or the wisdom sees things as they are, sees the natural activity of the body and the mind. Because it's that clear seeing, that insight, that helps the mind understand, understand cause and effect basically, how it is that the mind gets agitated, how it is that the mind becomes unwholesome, how it is that the heart and mind becomes wholesome. But if I'm in the middle of making my mind unwholesome, it's hard to discern what are the causes that lead the mind to become agitated and upset. This is from a couple of paragraphs from Joseph Goldstein's book, Insight Meditation. This chapter is called The Light of the World, and he's talking about the Buddhist teachings on karma. The unfolding of our life begins in our mind. The Buddha said, mind is the forerunner of all things. What is this mind out of which our life unfolds? When we look at mind directly, we see it as a dynamic, continuously changing, conditioned and reconditioned by all the different mental qualities that arise and pass away within it. Qualities like love, fear, anger, joy, mindfulness, ignorance, and many more. Sometimes these qualities work harmoniously with one another, and sometimes our mind seems engaged in a star wars of mental factors. Vipassana means seeing things clearly as they are. Through meditative exploration, we experience immediately and intimately which qualities of mind are the forerunners of suffering and which ones lead to freedom. Such understanding is no longer second-hand knowledge. 
we comprehend directly for ourselves. This means coming to see both what is happening in the moment and the laws that govern this whole unfolding living process. According to the Buddha, one aspect of right understanding is the essential underlying wisdom that wholesome and unwholesome actions bring about their respective results. This understanding constitutes the foundation of the entire Dharma. It is the source point for every kind of happiness. When we acquire this basic wisdom, that actions of body, speech, and mind lead somewhere, that they are conditions for different kinds of results, we win the all-important possibility of making wise choices. Right? So it's empowering to see how it is that through the way the mind is relating, we're feeding unwholesome qualities, reinforcing, building them up, or how we're feeding wholesome qualities, or how we're starving the unwholesome, or unfortunately at times starving the wholesome. It's sort of um, shocking in a way, hopefully raises the hair at the back of the neck, when we realize every single mo moment how my mind is relating, the understanding that the mind is relating through is planting seeds. It's either feeding or starving wholesome or unwholesome qualities. And the only question in terms of our practice is, am I awake enough in this moment to comprehend to some degree what I'm feeding and what I'm starving? Do we have a sense of what we're feeding and what we're starving right now? And that's what Joseph is pointing to as the empowering factor. When we begin, you know, it's kind of maturing, growing up as a spiritual person, where we're no longer blaming outside forces. It's not that outside circumstance or conditions don't affect us, they do. But there's not a lot we can do about that. But there is a lot we can do about how my mind is relating and what that's feeding and what that's starving. And this brings to mind a very well-known teaching from the suttas involving a layperson, Chitta. And he was a devoted practitioner of the Buddhist teachings. And he liked after the monks had their meal, he'd like to come and listen to their Dharma discussions. And so one day he was listening to some monks talking about whether the problem, the cause for suffering arising was that the heart is sensitive to experience or was the cause for suffering the objects that the mind or the heart was sensitive to. So you can just imagine two groups, one saying, no, if only we didn't have a sensitive mind, then there would be no problem. And the other saying, oh, it's not the sensitive mind, it's the difficult objects of experience. You know, the ugly visual experiences or the, you know, noxious smells or the difficult thoughts or the difficult emotions. That's the problem. Not that I'm sensitive, but that what I'm experiencing is 
unpleasant or difficult. So they were going round and round like this, evidently, and they had somehow, for some reason, the wherewithal to ask this lay person, because they had a sense, they knew he was a good student of the Buddhist teachings, and they asked Chitta what he thought. And he gave this analogy of two ox pulling a cart, and they're yoked together or tied together so that you know they stay together when they're pulling the cart. And Chitta said to the monks, is it right to say that this ox over here is a fetter to the one on the left, or that the this ox here is fettered by the one on the right? And the monks, you know, understood. No, it isn't that the fact that they're yoked together, it isn't one or the other's fault that they're yoked together. The problem is that they're yoked together, tied together. And so with this analogy, Chitta says, just so. The problem isn't the sensitivity of the heart, and the problem isn't the objects that the heart is sensitive to. The problem is what arises in conjunction to sensitivity to sense objects. Right? Something arises, and you could just, for lack of a better term, our habit energy, our tendencies to be greedy, our tendency to be aversive, that's what arises, right? How many times today did we have a visual object or a sensation, pleasant or unpleasant, or a pleasant or unpleasant thought? Many times. And when that particular object of experience arose and was known by the sensitive mind, what arose in conjunction with the Difficult thought, memory, difficult sensation, but the not liking. And what arose with the pleasant thought or the pleasant sensation or the pleasant sight? Greed. And so that's Chitta's way of saying that the problem we human beings need to understand is what's arising in conjunction with sensitivity. Remember in the beginning when when uh, giving instructions for the practice, we were saying just to simplify it as something being known. Something being known. This experience is being known. So there's an object and there's a sensitive mind. An object and a sensitive mind. And it's not so much that we can even tease the two apart. Maybe in deeper states, there's a clearer sense. But we know when we look at our present moment experience, from one point of view, we recognize the different objects that are being known. And when we look at our experience from another point of view, we know that knowing is happening. We know that the mind, the heart is sensitive to this, to that. Right? So we can, depending on how we're looking at the present moment, we can be aware that knowing is happening or we can be highlighting the objects that are being known. And as we get more nimble, more clear about something being known, something being known, it can become clear whether the something being known is being colored by one of the hindrances, one of the unwholesome tendencies that's arising because of habit in conjunction with the sensitive mind 
knowing an object. I mean, it happens all the time. Some of you saw the yellow Labrador, uh, yellow lab maybe, and uh, with the stick and the waggy tail. (laughs) And depending on your conditioning, it won't be the same for each of us. Maybe you had trauma with dogs when you were a kid, right? So for you, that visual experience, something would have arisen in conjunction with the sensitive eyes, seeing the dog, right? And then something arises, fear. For others who maybe were raised with a yellow lab, just like that one, who like to play fetch, you know, then something else arose. How sweet is this? Every meditation retreat should have a yellow lab with a stick in its mouth <laughs> and a lake to throw that stick into. It's like, I'm sure when and Mark planned this. <laughs> meditation of mindfulness of throwing the stick and mudita, right? Uh, sort of appreciative joy of seeing the dog having a purpose. <laughs> But as practitioners, right, students of the Buddha, we're really interested in how, I mean, this is the one thing we work so hard of cultivating the habit of mindfulness, is we really want to hone that interest, that present moment awareness to this one essential point. How is it that suffering arises? How is it that suffering ceases? When we're not distracted, this is what the mind is actually interested in. How do I get myself into such hell realms? How can I get this heart, this mind, to a blissful, peaceful, loving, wise place? Nimble, creative, unburdened place. Or as when we're saying one of the translations for Nibbana is the unbinding, the unshakable, unbinding, unprovoked awareness release. That's how Ajahn Tanisaro uh, translates some of the Buddhist teachings around freedom, when the Buddha is talking about what this continuity of mindful awareness, wisdom awareness leads to, the releasing the putting down of the load. But it requires not so much that I stop being bad, it requires that I, the mind sees things as they are. One of the things, the sort of really powerful teachings is how the Buddha describes the second noble truth. How is it that suffering is abandoned? And the key point is suffering is abandoned when the mind, when wisdom in the mind sees that suffering should be abandoned. Not so much that the person abandons the attachment, abandons the craving, but it sees that the craving should be abandoned. Seeing the unskillfulness. And there are many suttas where the Buddha is basically saying this. One I particularly like is sometimes translated the title as two kinds of thoughts. 
two sorts of thinking is how Tanisaro translates it. I've heard on one occasion the Blessed One was staying at Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anathapindaka's monastery. There he addressed the monks. Monks, yes, Venerable Sir, the monks replied. The Blessed One said, Before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, the thought occurred to me, why don't I keep dividing my thinking into two sorts? Right? So he's just observing the mind, wondering, maybe I should analyze the kinds of thoughts, the quality of thoughts into two categories. Thoughts imbued with sensuality, which is another way of saying greed, attachment to sense pleasure. Thinking imbued with ill will or aversion. And thinking imbued with harmfulness. That's one category. And thinking imbued with renunciation, so to the opposite of greed, thinking imbued with non-ill will or kindness, and thinking imbued with harmlessness or compassion. That's the other category. So the Buddha is like us. This is before his awakening. Sincere practitioner studying his mind, observing, right, beginning to observe that something being known, something being known, something being known, continuity, mindful awareness, and beginning to observe that things, tendencies, habits arise in conjunction with sense experience, something being known, sometimes greed, sometimes renunciation, sometimes ill will, sometimes kindness, sometimes harmfulness, you know, aggressiveness, sometimes compassion, the deep valuing of non-harming, not wanting to harm, right? He, he thought, oh, maybe it's good to make a, a clear recognition of what's wholesome, what's unwholesome. And in a way, in Buddhist terms, in the Buddhist teaching terms, this is really the beginning of wisdom. When, and you can just think back today, we notice what's happening and we just have a sense that what's happening, how the mind is relating, is planting seeds for suffering, i.e. unwholesome. Or the way the mind is relating to this particular sense experience is wholesome. It's not planting seeds for suffering, it's planting seeds for release, for letting go, for peacefulness, for equanimity wholesome. And this is the, you know, if you want a barometer whether your practice is unfolding in a good way, it's not so much about becoming perfect or superhuman. It's more, a more useful barometer is, does the mind, does wisdom in the mind know the difference between when you're planting unwholesome and when you're planting wholesome seeds? so that at any moment the mind is tracking that. Because, because of the force of habit, this mind, this heart, isn't going to stop planting unwholesome seeds. But I can hope to notice, to kind of do the math. Oh, the mind is greedy, lustful, the mind is aversive, wanting to get even you know, wanting to punish. And, and when the mind recognizes that, 
Then it can do the math, it can connect the dots. Oh, look at, just as I suspected, planting seeds of suffering. In fact, this is already a contraction and leads to more contraction. This is already a cause for my own suffering, my own contraction, and probably planting seeds causing other people to suffer. Like seeing that in real time, we get in a funk of ill will. Notice how it reverberates, how we tend to make other people around us have ill will. Like they get bothered by our ill will and relate to us with ill will, right? And then we go home, all of us, and relate to the people we live with with ill will, and they start having ill will toward us. And pretty soon we have a world like this, where there's a lot of ill will. Same thing with greed. You know, we see somebody with a meditation shawl, or somebody with a special drink, or somebody, you know, with whatever, special meditation cushion. We want a special meditation cushion. <laughs> we notice somebody sitting seemingly very comfortable in those new white couches that Metta Meditation Center has. You know, we think, I want one of those white couches at home. And we think, I got to get my phone from Mark so I can <laughs> see where they sell those. <laughs> not too soft, not too firm, middle way, just right. <laughs> this is real wisdom. And you see, we really, it's a, a profound shift from our habit, which is to locate the cause of suffering out there. Our partner, the world, even our body is the cause of my suffering, the weather is the cause of my suffering, what they serve for lunch, or whatever it might be. But more and more we're seeing, it's not so much that it's my fault, that I'm relating with ill will or greed, or it's my fault or my, um, you know, I'm great because I'm relating with renunciation or with kindness. It's more like that naturalist just connecting the dots. We're just learning to read things, read Dhamma the way it is, learning to read it correctly. Oh, this is how it works. This is how suffering, dukkha, arises. This is how dukkha ceases. That's why the Buddha calls karma, and uh, we both, Wynne and I have both mentioned one aspect of karma, the teachings on hiri otapa, the wholesome concern, wholesome regret. The Buddha refers to these teachings as the light of the world. Right? Because without this understanding, we're sort of flailing. You know, we suffer, but we don't have a clue what to do about it. So we tend to do things that cause ourselves and others more suffering. And then because we're having more suffering, we flail in ways that cause more suffering. And because we're suffering, we, and not only are we suffering, we're causing others, so they flail, they lament, they scream, they blame. And again, we end up with a world like this, where there's a lot of injustice that keeps repeating itself, a lot of cycles of suffering, people being oppressed, animals being 
harmed, right? And we keep thinking that the way out has something to do with, you know, some external thing. And it doesn't mean that external factors aren't influential, but we keep missing the essential point, which is in every moment, by thought, word, and deed, I'm planting seeds, even the way I'm thinking. And then if I put my thinking into words, even more so, and if I put my thinking into words and then actions of body, deeds in the world, then even more so I'm planting seeds. So the Buddha, in this discourse, he says, as I remained thus heedful, ardent, and resolute. Now that sounds like he's practicing pretty well. Now this is an important teaching. As I remained thus heedful, ardent, resolute, thinking imbued with sensuality, with greed arose. Right? So that means you could be practicing well and greed will arise. Because it isn't personal. Why does greed arise when we're practicing well? Because of past conditions. We could be doing everything right but we planted a lot of seeds of lust and greed in the past and they're going to come. And so if we misinterpret and think I'm being a bad yogi because I've got greed or I'm really bothered by the person sitting next to me, ill will, that's a misinterpretation. Instead, we should be, I'm so happy to see this greed. I'm so happy that I'm clearly aware of the ill will because that means I'm practicing well. I can see it arise in the mind. I can see that when the mind identifies with the greed or the ill will, more seeds are planted. It's strengthened. And that's what the Buddha says here. Sensuality arose in me. I discern that thinking imbued with greed has arisen in me. And that leads to my own affliction or to the affliction of others or to the affliction of both. It obstructs discernment, promotes vexation, does not lead to unbinding. And then here's the good news. The Buddha says, as I noticed that it leads to my own affliction, it subsided. Okay, so this is something that we can all check out. Is that actually true? If I notice greed has arisen in the mind, and then I'm just discerning, it's here, there's greed, greed is being known, and discerning that it leads to my own affliction, the affliction of others or the affliction of both. Right? It's hot, it's burning, it's contracted, it's agitating. Didn't we notice that today about greed? I did, a lot. <laughs> I guess I'm a good practitioner. <laughs> And now the interesting thing that he says, as I noticed that it was unskillful, right? As I noticed that it leads to my affliction, it subsided. He didn't say, as I went like this to get rid of the greed, <laughs> it went away, right? He just noticed that it leads, he just noticed cause and effect. This greed is not helpful. That's why the Buddha emphasizes so much about patience. We have to see these unwholesome tendencies. That's why retreats are so hard, right? Because 
those times we're not in a deep, peaceful, meditative state, we're just noticing the normal functioning of the mind in living color. We're noticing the greed and the aversion and all the other qualities of mind, conceit, regret, rage, shame, right? We notice all of those qualities, not being good enough, comparing mind, I think when we'll talk about later in the retreat. We see it in living color because we're more sensitive. And then we need this patience, like we have to realize this is good. To see that this is unskillful means wisdom is doing its job. Because what's wisdom's job? To see things as they are. And if an unwholesome quality has arisen, it's not going to be a pretty sight. It's not going to feel good because it's an unwholesome quality. Just like when a wholesome quality arises, it's going to feel good. It's going to look good. But the job isn't to grasp the wholesome and be afraid or averse to the unwholesome. The job is to understand this is being known. Right? We don't want to forget that because our habit is to complicate it. It's more simple. We just are meeting reality as it is. Greed is here. As I discern the presence of greed, it becomes obvious to the wisdom in the mind. This leads to my affliction. When I notice that it leads to my affliction, the natural result is for the greed to be starved, to weaken. So what causes greed or lust to go away? Noticing that it's not helpful. Noticing that it's not helpful, noticing that it's not helpful, noticing that it's not helpful. Which means we're feeling it like we've been saying, when and I have been saying, often we have to feel it in the body. Because the thoughts about greed, just like the thoughts about ill will, they seem pretty convincing. I really do need to get revenge. This person does need to be punished. How should I do that? Should I write a note? Should I write a note to the teacher or should I write a note to them? You know? Or should I just write a mental note and somehow psychically transmit it so the person gets the message? They're not good. They're not doing the right thing. And they need to know that. Anybody write a note like that today? <laughs> it's good to laugh. Right? Because that's part of seeing the anatta, the impersonal nature of these. Those tendencies of greed and ill will, they arise because of past causes. There isn't a mark doing it in this moment. Right? So we need to see it, we have to be honest, we have to feel what it feels like. But personalizing it, taking it personally, that's going too far. And then we keep it in motion, we keep feeding it. So the Buddha says the same thing about ill will, same thing about harmfulness, right? When I see that it causes, leads to my affliction, affliction of other, affliction of both, it subsided. As I notice that it, uh, as I notice that it leads to the affliction of others and to both, that it obstructs discernment, promotes vexation, and does not lead to unbinding, it subsided. So he's basically saying, when I notice clearly that it's unskillful, unhelpful, it goes away, it weakens. 
Whenever thinking imbued with sensuality, greed had arisen, I simply abandoned it, dispelled it, wiped it out of existence, but not with ill will, by seeing, by discerning that it causes harm. That's what causes, right? So it's, in a way there's a fork in the road. Either the mind gets identified with the drama of the ill will or the greed, or the mind understands that it's unhelpful. And when we understand that it's unhelpful, the mind, the tendency of the mind to get entangled, to get attached, identified, it subsides, it retreats. It lets the aversion or the greed be an impersonal natural phenomena that's present because of past causes, will hang out for a while in the body and in the mind doing its thing because of past causes, but because it's not being fed, it goes away. And that's the good news of the practice. And it relates to another discourse that, again, that is so, you know, just <laughs> the Buddha had a great way of these similes. <clears throat> just as if, a, as if a great mass of fire of 10, 20, 30, 40 cartloads of timber were burning, and into it a person would periodically throw dried grass, dried cow dung, dried timber. So that great mass of fire, thus nourished, thus sustained, would burn for a long, long time. That should scare us. How much timber and dried dung did we throw into our fires of greed and aversion today? Because even when we stop throwing it in, did you notice that the momentum of the greed and aversion continued to burn because it had some fuel, right? And this is especially like, it's one thing when we catch an obsessive thought in the first moment or two, because it can almost like pop. We see the drama, right, when it's first arising, and then it just pops, it's just gone. And it's like we dodged a bullet. But if we've been stewing, obsessing, framed by greed or aversion for an hour, and then finally mindfulness gets back on track and we realize, whoa, this isn't helping. This leads to my own affliction and the affliction of others. And we kept that in mind like, this isn't helping. This is unskillful. This is a cause for stress and suffering. And it started to, like we stopped adding more fuel but the fuel that had already been thrown in the fire, right, the feeling in the body can persist. And that's, you know, this is the more conventional use of the word karma. That's our karma, to have to patiently endure whatever we've set in motion because of our unhelpful thinking, obsessing, or actions. I mean, even more so, think about some of the actions that we did 10, 20, 30 years ago that we're still feel, feeling the unpleasant effects of. And there's no way to go back and change that. The only thing we can do is turn the lasting yucky feeling into a beautiful monument that says in a very wise way, honey, don't do that again. Right? That's called 
skillful remorse. Hiri otapa, skillful concern, skillful remorse. Like, I don't want to forget that that doesn't lead to happiness. Because there's no way we can somehow make that painful thing go away. It will go away when it goes away. But you and I can't make it go away. So as long as the pain of remorse exists, we turn it into something good. Honey, don't do that again. That doesn't help. Because we all, like, who in the room hasn't done stupid things? Said stupid things, acted out hate and greed in ways that caused ourselves and others harm? So the question is how to hold it. And that's what we get a sense of when we've set something in motion and fed the fire, fed the fire. We know that once we stop feeding the fire, it's only a matter of time before it burns out. But we don't really know how much fuel, right? We just know that if I don't add any more, it will burn itself out. And we get pretty good at being patient. And not only that, the deeper insight is, even as those old fires are still smoldering, they're not really personal. The pain is still there, but wisdom slowly understands, I don't have to personalize the fact that I'm an imperfect human being that has made mistakes. I don't have to have any drama about this wound and that wound. I just need to be willing to be intimate with the wounds as they exist in my life, in my heart. I have to be aware, I have to be willing to feel what I feel, but I don't have to tell a personal story about them as if I did something bad. Something bad happened, something unskillful happened. How do I know? Because there's this smoldering fire because of the remaining fuel. That's how I know. And in Buddhism we call that moral sensitivity. It's part of the Buddhist teachings on karma. Right? Morality exists in a very real way, but it exists right here in the sensitivity of our heart doesn't matter if nobody caught us doing something bad because we feel it in our heart. It exists there in our own heart. When we've caused harm, when we've been, you know, lied to ourselves or lied to somebody else, it lays down an impression in our heart. And even if we pretend that we don't remember, the heart still knows. This is the interesting thing on retreat where you have memories that you never have had before? Because the mind doesn't forget anything. We just forget that we've remembered <laughs> or that we're, you know, all that information is still there. All the impressions have been laid down in the heart. So the, there's a flip side of this removing the fuel and the fire won't blaze, just as a great mass of fire were burning into which a person would simply not throw dried grass, dried cow dung, dried timber. And so that great mass of fire, its original sustenance being consumed and no other being offered, 
would without nourishment go out. Even so, practitioners, and one who keeps focusing on the drawbacks of those phenomena that offer sustenance, craving stops. From the stopping of craving, sustenance stops. From the stopping of sustenance, becoming, birth, aging, illness and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair all stop. Thus is the stopping of this entire mass of suffering and stress. Well, that's a beautiful promise. So this is our practice, you know, we're sitting in our meditation posture, we're doing walking meditation, we're eating our meals, we're in transition from one thing to the next, but all day long something is being known and with each experience being known, past tendencies come to the surface based on the sensitivity and the object the mind is sensitive to. And what comes to the surface, the past tendencies that get activated by whatever experience, whatever thought we're thinking, sight we're seeing, sensation we're feeling, there's not much we can do about it except to be intimate, to discern, oh, it's not just this object that's arising, but this tendency to think about this object, to relate to this object with ill will, or maybe a wholesome quality, to relate to it with patience or with discerning wisdom. Right. So it's not just unwholesome tendencies that are embedded in the mind stream, but there are wholesome tendencies too that get activated. We see somebody walking mindfully, right? And depending on how our mind's conditioned, a lot of jealousy might arise. Why can't I be the good yogi? You know, why am I always the one who looks bad? I want to be the good yogi. Or a wholesome quality might come. Oh, that person looks really serene, really mindful. How beautiful. How about I do that. <laughs> you know, how about I sympathetically vibrate with that person? We take the inspiration and we kind of settle into our experience as we sense that person has settled into their experience. We turn the attention back to the present moment, right? So that interest, that inspiration, those are wholesome qualities that can arise just from seeing another retreatant. And we begin again. So all day long, wholesome and unwholesome tendencies are arising, and our job is to discern, like the Buddha says, oh, that's a wholesome, I'll put that in the wholesome category. I'll put that in the unwholesome category. And sometimes in the sutta, where the Buddha is talking about dividing experience and how the mind's relating in, term, in, ter, in terms of wholesome and unwholesome. He says that when there are a lot of unwholesome qualities, 
then were like a cow herder walking along a narrow path with ripe rice fields on both sides of the narrow path and I've got my 30 cows and I got to get them from one place to the other along this narrow path I'm going to be really vigilant tapping them this way and tapping them that way so they don't walk on the rice because if they do walk on the rice the farmer is not going to be happy and they're going to sue me or beat me or I'll be in trouble so sometimes when we have a lot of unwholesome qualities we're reminding ourselves this is just a version it feels like this is it safe to feel what it feels like yeah it's safe to feel what it feels like it's just this aversion being known patient endurance with what that feels like oh this is greed greed is not for my benefit or for anybody's benefit let me just feel what it feels like can it be felt in the body yeah this is what that greed feels like in the body. Can I be intimate with it? Can I be unafraid? Can I resist the tendency either to act it out, to give it a ticket for another lap? Oh yeah, that would be nice if I, you know, and fantasize about getting what we want, having the perfect experience, whatever that might be, or beating myself up for being greedy. We don't take those routes. We have this this is greed, feels like this. That's the tapping, keeping the cows in line. That's what we do when there are a lot of unwholesome qualities, because sometimes it's like that for us. Maybe a lot of the time it's like that for us. And sometimes it's really wholesome. Patience is arising, discerning wisdom is arising, lots of calm and steadiness and stillness is arising, metta is arising, the loving-kindness. And then the Buddha gives the image of now the rice has been harvested. Now the cowherder can sit under a shade tree just knowing that the cows are there. The farmers don't mind them being in the fields. They actually prefer it because they're poop and there'll be fertilizer for the next year's crops. So the because the mind is more dominated by wholesome qualities, we don't need to neurotically, the practitioner, oh, right? We just need to know wholesome states, wholesome states. So it's more like recognizing the wholesomeness and trusting. We don't need to be a neurotic practitioner afraid of feeding the fires of greed, anger, and delusion. We can have more trust. And as a practitioner, it changes all the time. So there may be an hour where you're like really on your game, really vigilant, because you know if you're not, you're going to be planting seeds that you're going to have to deal with for at least the rest of the day, maybe the rest of this life, maybe lifetime after lifetime, right? Feeding fires that have been fed before and over and over and over. And as you know, the Buddha has very graphic ways of talking about how long we've been spinning in cycles of suffering. So, sometimes we have to be really vigilant, where we, we basically kind of, I don't know much, but I don't want to add more suffering. So I'm going to do what I can do. I'm going to be vigilant. 
I'm going to be willing to feel what's here to feel. I'm not going to act because I don't want to feel what's here to feel. A lot of times we react to greed and aversion because we're afraid to feel the yucky feeling right here in the heart and body that's there when we've been caught in greed and aversion. So we have to train ourselves. I'd rather feel the unpleasant feeling of greed and aversion than plant more seeds of greed and aversion. Because I'll still be feeling it, I'll just be too busy planting more seeds to notice how unpleasant it is. So this is like, you know, any addictive pattern, we've seen this. I mentioned this the first night, I think, about when we've been on a binge, listening to the news or watching TV or whatever the obsessive, addictive thing we've been doing, and then we finally draw the line in the sand, I'm done, I'm not going to do this anymore. And we stop. And what does that feel like? I mean, on the one hand, it's a relief that wisdom has arisen, finally taking care of ourselves. But it's a very yucky feeling that we really want to go back. There's got to be another show to watch. Just one more, right? So that feeling where we're feeling the draw of the anger, or the draw of the greed, but we're not taking the bait, and we're willing just to be in that unpleasantness. So sometimes we have to be willing to be in that place, and to be really vigilant, and to keep over and over again, no, no, I can just feel this. I can just feel this. The fire's blazing, but I'm not adding any more fuel. I'm not going to add any more fuel. And this vigilance comes out of compassion. Remember, compassion can be quite fierce. When we really care about this life and the lives of others, not wanting to contribute to the causes for harm, we can be quite fierce dedicated, unwavering. And and sometimes our life really requires that. But sometimes it's not that way, and we need to relax and really notice the wholesome qualities, notice that they're taking care of themselves. The interesting thing about wholesome qualities, I think Wynne mentioned this in her talk last night, when we're aware that there are wholesome qualities, they get stronger. So just being aware there's a positive feedback loop. Right? We're, that's what we're specifically doing during the loving-kindness practice. <clears throat> we're abiding in the quality of loving-kindness, metta, and knowing we're doing that with mindfulness. So not only is there metta, there's a mindful awareness that metta is being known, being felt. And that strengthens it. That's why it's like a feedback loop, why it can build and become a very expansive, boundless state, very beautiful and healing state, where it, it really feels like it's affecting every cell, every inch of the heart and mind is touched by the goodness of loving kindness. And it isn't like, I'm doing that. It's just a very natural feedback mechanism. There's loving-kindness, and there's the knowing of it. There's the object, loving-kindness, and the knowing of it. And 
the combination of loving kindness and the knowing of it amplifies the loving kindness. So the next moment, there's more loving kindness and the knowing of it. And then the next moment, even more loving kindness and the knowing of it. Because the recognition, the clear recognition, causes it to be amplified. In the same way that clearly seeing the unwholesomeness of greed and aversion undermines it. So maybe I'll save a little time before we end to just mention all five of the hindrances. I've talked a lot about wanting, greed, and ill will, not wanting. But there's um, a really simple teaching, and it's related to the Buddhist teachings on karma that the Buddha offers for dealing with the five hindrances. These are the five qualities of mind that hinder stability of awareness, or samadhi, get in the way of samadhi. So we have greed and aversion, then we have too much energy, restlessness, too little energy, sleepiness and dullness, and doubt. And in a way, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt or different facets of ignorance, right? Taking the sleepiness personally, misunderstanding it, taking the restlessness personally, taking the questions the mind is asking personally as if they have to be answered, right? In a conceptual way. So greed, anger, and delusion. Now the the interesting thing I wanna mention is it really matters what we pay attention to. So when there's greed, now I've been talking about this a lot, relaying some of the Buddhist teachings, when there's greed or aversion, it really matters what we pay attention to. So if there's greed in the mind, and I'm paying attention to that promise that greed provides, oh, if only, sure, I'm burning because of all the greed, but if only I were to get that, right? And that's the promise, and we it sends us back into the greed cycle one more time. So if I pay attention to the attractive aspect, it feeds the greed. But if I pay attention to the unattractive aspect, so just bring to mind something you were greedy about today, something to do with being at home and having what you want, or whatever it might have been, we could bring to mind that whatever it is that we were greedy for, we could bring to mind the fuller picture. Like when I fantasize about cabins, I bring to mind how much work it would be to keep it up. When you have a cabin on the side of a lake, there's a lot of humidity and a lot of mildew, a lot of mold, and I'm allergic to mold. And it's a pain in the butt to keep the mold out of cabins, right? Something like that. And just, you know, any number of other truths about a cabin, that would be hard to deal with, like paying for it, and paying the insurance and the property tax every year, and mowing the lawn, you know? and worried about neighbors and whether they're noisy or cool, 
and the kind of neighbors you want or the kind of neighbors you don't want, and on and on. So we just have that more full picture because when I pay attention to that, the fires of greed diminish. Oh yeah. That's how the Buddha has a lot of people don't understand the Asubha practices where we notice that the body is skin and hair and not too far in, blood and guts. What really changes, like when we keep bringing to mind somebody that we find attractive and we realize you know, between an eighth of an inch, I'm not even sure if it's that thick, you know, it's blood and guts. It really changes the perception when we remember. And some of that stuff on the inside, we definitely are not interested in. But we can be so deluded by simple, silly stuff because of what we pay attention to and how the mind is conditioned. And the same thing with aversion. When I pay attention to that thing that that person does, it fuels the aversion. Oh yeah, they did that. Oh yeah, they did that. You know, and I just keep, either they're doing it again or I'm just remembering that they did it, even if it was two days ago or three days ago. Oh yeah, three days ago they did that. But if I can, not even necessarily for that person, if I can just remember Yellow Lab, Raggy Town, you know, and the metta, the natural metta, or I saw a little, I don't know if it was a hedgehog or muskrat, which just run across the yard today, you know, and the birds, pelicans I've seen several times. You know, just, my heart just opens, like, can't be easy being a creature these days with so much of the habitat gone and hawks looking for you and, you know, no ends to problems. Got to get your meal every day, you know. It's not easy being a creature. And the metta just flows. And then all of a sudden, the fact that that person did something irritating three days ago doesn't matter because now there's loving kindness in the heart. Oh, you're just a creature too, doing the best you can, even if it was wrong. (laughs) But I see it in a new light, like, yeah, it's like mice coming into the house. Oh, you're not supposed to do that, but you're just looking for some warmth, or you're just looking for something to eat, just like a mosquito. We don't have to be angry at the mosquito, we just need to get it out of the bedroom, right? Because it's just doing what we're doing. We're the co-op. <laughs> <laughs> so, in terms of each of these five hindrances, wanting, not wanting, too much energy, too little energy, and doubt, when the mind's spinning with doubt, even without knowing specifically the Buddhist teachings, we can get interested in the basic principle It matters what I pay attention to. So we're suffering. First of all, we don't even know why we're suffering, but we know we're suffering. So that wakes us us up. Now the mind's interested. We stabilize the awareness, maybe with our primary anchor. We come back to the body or the breath. We get some stability of awareness. Then we have some more fresh, balanced attention, and we notice, oh, greed or doubt or whatever it is. And then... 
We know that this is a cause for my affliction and possibly the affliction of others. So we're in this place where the mind wisdom is interested in discerning how is this getting fed? How can this be weakened and start? And even if we have not a clue, we can just observe. Oh, look it. I just thought that. I just noticed that and it got stronger. Or I just looked at it this way, brought this to mind, and it got weaker. Oh, cause and effect. In terms of karma, the law of karma, it matters how I pay attention, what I pay attention, with what attitude I pay attention. It matters. We don't get away with nothing. Every moment matters. But the thing is, it may feel a little overwhelming, but at least we feel empowered. I can plant seeds of unbinding, of release. I'm not helpless. I'm not a helpless person destined to suffer to the end of time. I just need to figure out how to plant a wholesome seed now. And then again, and then again. And no matter how many times we planted an unwholesome seed, it doesn't matter because it's done. Those unwholesome, that fuel was thrown into the fire. It's there. What matters now is how I'm going to show up to this moment with habit energy or with wisdom. Fueling the fire or starving the fires of greed and hatred, doubt. Looking at dullness in a particular way, we get sleepy. Looking at rest, whatever is making us restless in a way, we get more restless. When I relate to restlessness, in what way does it settle? When I relate to sleepiness, in what way does more energy arise in the mind? That's an interesting question. What can I pay attention to? When paying attention to what does the mind come into a beautiful balance? When paying attention to what does everything fall apart and all hell breaks loose? Right? Because that's how we learn. By making a lot of mistakes and starting to have more and more success. Oh, oh, this really helps. This really helps. So I'll just end the simple teaching from the Buddha. This is his rah, 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 go, cheer. <laughs> abandon what is unskillful. One can abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unskillful would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unskillful brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unskillful. Cultivate the good. You can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the good would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the good brings benefit and happiness, Therefore I say, cultivate the good. So let's leave it here. We'll just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Appreciate the silence.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.